Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, all you adapters out there. Welcome back. On today's episode, I have Dr. Rebecca Beavers from the National Park Service talking about climate change, coastal adaptation, and just a bit about what Donald Trump might mean for climate change at the National Park Service. Thanks. Hope you stick around. Hey, adapters, welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. It's so great to have you back listening to our week's episode. Today, I have America's best idea on the podcast. Yes, that's right. America's best idea, the National Park Service. This is episode 28. And on today's episode, I have Rebecca Beavers, who's the Coastal Adaptation Coordinator with the Climate Change Response Program at the National Park Service. Okay, this is a little bit unusual. I recorded this podcast, and, I, and I'm saying this in advance. Rebecca is the first government employee I've actually had on the podcast, and for there are other reasons that <laughs> that I made that decision, but she is on, and it, it's kind of an unusual situation, I think, with everything that's going on with the new Trump administration, you know, the government employees... Their ability to speak out on issues, especially like climate change, has changed. And so this, I just want to make clear, this podcast was recorded three days before inauguration. Rebecca got permission all the way up the food chain at the National Park Service. So if you're listening to this and thinking she's kind of gone rogue, no, Rebecca got permission during the previous administration to do this podcast. This podcast was recorded under the Obama administration, and then three days later, we have a new administration. Obviously, things have changed, and I'm you know, not quite sure if we would have even recorded this after the fact, but we did. And it is what it is, and it takes a couple weeks to actually get these things up. And so I just want to make that clear if people are thinking that, all right, the National Park Service just recorded this. No, but I hope you find the podcast interesting for that reason. And you know, I'll get into it a bit later, and I have a discussion at the end about what's going to happen now with the Park Service based on what Rebecca talked about. And I think most of the things that we talked about with Rebecca, it's about the Coastal Adaptation Handbook. Donald Trump has brought up briefly, but I and I just want to make clear from Rebecca's perspective and not in a political way at all. And I'm sure, you know, because these first few weeks have been a bit insane and a lot of things happening out there, especially some big questions associated with the federal government. And so I hope this episode gives you a sense of what federal government is capable of doing on climate change. And it's also a reminder that this these are the expectations that uh, for us in the public should be met going forward. And so I ho hope it's sort of a, a, a standard reference point on, on the potential great things that the government is doing on climate change. Okay, that said, I just want to give that some context of like when this was recorded. All right, as, as I've started to do now, every week I hear randomly from people and I, and I love hearing randomly from listeners they've come across it in the coolest ways possible just a shout out to Julia J Megan Andrew Lewin Suzanne Laura Jamie March Carrie Jacob I love hearing from all you and some of you I'm using your last name because I think it'd be okay others I'm not sure if you'd be comfortable with me using their last name but thanks for contacting me if you have something to say or you just have a cool story about the podcast and what you get out of it, I would love hearing from you. My email is on my website. That said, my website is americadaps.org. And we, I've heard this week from someone who just did a major sort of brainstorm dump on what they think the potential for America Daps could be. And I, and I loved it and I'm communicating with this person. And it's sort of like what I have in mind for America Daps 2.0. 
That said, you know, I also had another conversation. I want to say this at the beginning is sort of housekeeping is I've talked about this in the past. A lot of groups could benefit from a podcast and it's an area that I'm looking to get involved in and it's doing some, uh, I guess consulting related to how you can start your own podcast. It's such a great way to connect with your listeners. And I think a lot of NGOs are missing an opportunity. So if you're an NGO and you're interested in doing a podcast, please contact me. You can get my email at my website. Okay. Again, there's a Facebook page and a Facebook community group. The community group is a little bit more personal. I generally pretty much answer everything and people post stories. Just uh, look for America Daps on Facebook and you'll see the page and the community group. And um, I will ex- just accept you when you join. Also, I want to encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or if you're on Android, there's the different ways that you can subscribe using Android. Please do. There, People have asked how they can kind of get more involved with climate change and even helping out with the podcast. You know, I do have a PayPal option. I am doing this full time now and I'm looking at, you know, different options for sponsorship, but listeners are always a source of sponsorship. So please consider that. Just go to the website and there's a PayPal. I'm also looking at doing a Patreon page, which is sort of a a version of, of Kickstarter. And if you are out there looking at, if you're not a climate change person, but you want to help, especially you want to help America adapt and you have some skills in this, please. Yeah. Give me a holler. I, I'd love to brainstorm with you about getting started with a Patreon page. If you have advice, have done that in the past, it, that would be your way. Maybe potentially helping out the, on the climate change end. And all right, I'm almost done here. I know you guys all hate this part, but I have to do get this plug in. Cause I don't know if you listen at the end and yeah, if you could, Give a share on your own Facebook page. This podcast succeeds on word of mouth, and uh, I certainly will give you a plug on the podcast the following week. And next week, I have on Karen Bolter. She's a sea level rise researcher. I know some of you have been anxiously awaiting for her. I've kind of shuffled things, and darn it, she's going to be on next week, no matter what, unless someone like Barack Obama gives me a call and says he wants to be on the podcast. And Karen, I'm sorry, I will bump you again, but I'm not going to, that's not the plan. So I'm looking forward to sharing what you've talked about. All right, no more delays. Let's talk about America's best idea. Welcome back, everyone. This is America Daps, and I'm very excited. I have a friend who's on the podcast. This is Dr. Rebecca Beavers from the National Park Service. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing not not bad. Um, it's it. I'm very excited to have you on. We used to work together. For people out there, I've had other friends on before, but you're actually my first government representative on the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Okay. So what is your role at the National Park Service? Well, I've been with the Park Service for about 16 years, initially starting as a coastal geologist focused on erosion, sea level rise, storm impact topics. And over the years, I've focused in on more adaptation related topics so that we can better manage our resources and assets in the dynamic coastal zone. So we're going to be talking all about adaptation and specifically coastal adaptation. But I want my listeners to know that you are based in Denver, Colorado. What the hell is a coastal adaptation coordinator doing in the middle of the country? Well, I would say I initially came to Colorado because it seemed like a great place to play after I'd done a postdoc. And I really was intrigued by this thought of working for the government. And heck, I got to live and play in the mountains of Colorado. I will also say I was working at University of North Carolina in Wilmington at the time, helping with a lab, doing a lot of research on storm impacts. And really, it was pretty intense living in the coastal zone for a few decades. I decided it was time to try another environment. Plus, the job seemed really cool. 
Yes, I'm so jealous. We DC types with the, this mid Atlantic area is terrible. You're up in the mountains and I'm extremely jealous. Well, it's pretty cool to be in Colorado. I've got to say it's given me another perspective beyond being on the Atlantic and Gulf where I'd spent so much time prior to coming to Colorado and also living at the top part of the watershed. You really do get a different perspective on how our nation is handling a variety of things, including adaptation to climate change. Okay, so we know each other from my time working at the National Park Service, and people, everyone knows the National Parks is America's best idea. So everyone just assumes what they think a national park is. But I mean, if you had to describe what is the National Park Service, I mean, how would you describe it to someone who just doesn't really understand what it's all about? If I were speaking to someone who really hadn't heard about the National Park Service, I would say we are the federal agency responsible for managing very special places, as well as some programs that represent our historic resources. And really, we are there to preserve the nation's heritage, both cultural and natural and provide for a visitor experience. So we have the special places like Grand Canyon and Statue of Liberty, but we also have really small places such as a new unit of Harriet Tubman's house in New York. So we've got a variety of resources that really document our nation's history. Yeah, there are a lot of parks. I think you're what up to like 415 or something like that. Actually, we're a little bit higher than that. We've just had a few national monuments added, even some of the ones I described. So even in the last week, President Obama has designated a few monuments. And we may have to cut that because of the timing. (laughs) So what is your favorite park? You have to pick one. Well, I would say there's some parks I have a lot of dear experiences in, and those would have to be the parks of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I did my PhD at Duke University, living at the Duke Marine Lab, working at the Corps of Engineers facility up in Duck, North Carolina. I actually gave tours up there, so my experiences and interpreters, not with the Park Service, but with another federal agency, the Army Corps of Engineers. But those parks in there are the Outer Banks, uh, including Cape Hatteras and Cape Lookout National Seashores. So they're different, and yet they just have that wonderful Outer Banks experience. But I will say, every time I visit a park, I find something unique and potent in terms of the experience. So even if I go to Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado with my family, it is incredibly touching and it reminds us why there are such special places have been set aside for all to enjoy. Very cool. So the parks have been in the news lately. And so as, as people probably realize, this is, little, this is being recorded, but we're actually a few days away from the inauguration of a new administ- presidential administration. And so one of the stories in the news is potentially selling off parks. And so I'm hoping this isn't going to happen. Is that any sort of chatter about that going on? There really isn't within the National Park Service, at least to the offices that I'm involved with. We're really pleased to hear some of the testimony that we're hearing with some of the new nominees. And even their information, their statements to Congress have said they do not think we should be privatizing some of these areas that have been set aside because it's quite a long process to set aside a unit of the National Park Service. Most people may see a designation occur very quickly. There are years of background information and documentation and careful study that goes into making a unit of the National Park Service. So there are many people in favor of it, but we also recognize there are challenges when areas are set aside as a unit of the National Park Service. Ah, the bureaucracy is kicking in the gear. I love it. So, but if we had to sell one, I mean, I just want you to go on record and tell me which one would you be comfortable selling? I could not. 
I could not put one. <laughs> I will say there are a few, and we've looked at what I would say not the entire unit. We've said sometimes there are areas within certain parks, whether there's been a dramatic change. So sometimes we do have land exchanges. So we've seen that. I think at times even the Park Service has recognized there are certain areas that may be better managed in the private sector. Okay, so if it does come up, let me, let me recommend. And you know, I, I'm from Florida and I love Florida, but I, I would put Everglades at the top of the list. And hear me out because it's going to be underwater. Imagine these suckers buying this land, and you know, within 40, 70, 80 years, it's all going to be underwater. And so, you know, you make some quick dough, and they get stuck with, I guess, a marine park. So, well, anyway. a marine park. But guess what? We've got some of the deepest areas in the country within our units, the National Park Service. So we have amazing ocean resources. So, yes, the parks are going to get a bit more water on them. We're going to manage more submerged resources. So people may not be as involved with some of the things such as walking around units of the parks, but all of a sudden we can bring people in by snorkeling. They can come in and dive in parks. There are a lot of other ways to experience the resources that are not the traditional ways they've accessed parks. And I think that's a key thing we need people to understand. You can still get to these parks. The way you access them may change. All right. Great answer. Very <laughs> smart answer. Okay. So the National Park Service is doing climate change. You are in the climate change response program, and we don't need to go into the details of how that kind of fits in all the different pieces of the National Park Service, but maybe just a little bit of an explanation of what CCRP is and what your roles and responsibilities. And obviously I can weigh in too if needed, but you're there. You're part of the program. Well, I guess NPS is on the job, right? MBS is on the job related to climate change. Back in 2010, there was an actual program established that included some people such as myself, but a lot of new hires into the park system who had experience in the ecology of adaptation. We now have people called adaptation ecologists. And those terms didn't exist when you or I went to college or grad school. These are new fields of research, but really it's tying into a lot of interdisciplinary topics. So this program has every type of discipline from communication to our scientists to people who are really looking at the interdisciplinary nature, I would say, particularly like myself, looking across the science side, but going into how are we dealing with facility management, our cultural resources, as well as providing for that visitor experience. So whereas we have a program that's established, we do work with a lot of other existing programs in the Park Service, such as our Sustainable Operations and Climate Change Program. They're really focused in our facilities and assets. So we do recognize climate change isn't really only this natural resource topic that we often focus in on. We have to recognize how it's impacting our cultural resources, our cultural heritage, as well as our facilities. I mentioned visitor access before. And so that is a key component of how we'll address climate change in the park service. Well, I think the public probably doesn't appreciate how the parks are really managed. And so could you maybe just explain it quickly, like the climate change program is a service-wide program. And what does that mean in context of like individual park units? Yeah. So the, with the climate change program being service-wide means we really try and take a look at parks all the way from Samoa and Saipan to Virgin Islands, Acadia, Great Lakes, Alaska. So we're trying to look at topics across the service. And yet we have regions of the Park Service. For example, our southeast region is one we know that's incredibly vulnerable to the effects of storms and sea level rise. 
And we also have staff within parks. Some of the people that folks will encounter when they come to units in the National Park Service, particularly on vacation with your family, you'll come in, maybe you'll do a ranger-led interpretive program. And those interpreters are on the front line of communication of climate change. So we provide good information to those staff so that they can interact with the visiting public. For example, the Park Service is known as one of the most trusted sources by the public for information even on climate change. So we really work hard to make sure they have the cutting edge, the most well-documented information so that they can communicate those with the visitors. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people appreciate that, you know, forget social media or the internet, those waysides at individual parks, the amount of eyeballs that see those waysides, I mean, they really can be influential. They can be influential. And what I've learned, we've had a program doing several waysides and parks all the way from Everglades to Kenai Fjords in Alaska. And to do a wayside takes a tremendous amount of time and documentation. They are so small. But if anyone who's done a lot of writing knows, to get small amounts of text to be as meaningful as an informative as they can be and as accurate as they can be takes a lot of time. And so we have people whose job is really focused in on those types of wayside exhibits and communicating information. You know, and let me make clear, because I think I was six months on the job and I didn't know what a wayside was. That's, you know, I don't have a history with the park service. And so for those listeners, it's just the signs when you get to a park that sort of you're seeing a landscape and it's just this laminated, really heavy duty kind of sign that kind of explains what you're seeing. I'm sure most of you knew that already, but I wanted to make that clear if it wasn't. And as you can imagine, whatever you put down on that, it's got to be there for the long haul. So, I mean, like Rebecca's saying, it's you, you need to try to get it right, you know, the first time. And I can tell you, Doug, if we don't get it right, I have some people who know how to contact me and will help us work with the parks to make some changes. But people will speak out if they see inaccuracies on park service information. They are not afraid to let us know what they think. Yes. And so, Rebecca, I want to pivot to, you know, one of the main reasons besides just us talking about parks and such that you've come on the podcast is that, Last fall, you guys released a coastal adaptation handbook. And so I think, you know, a lot of people are very interested in these tools and resources that are coming out. And I thought we could spend some time talking about that handbook. And so could you kind of give your elevator speech on the handbook and we can kind of just go from there? Thanks, Doug. Yes, the Coastal Adaptation Strategies Handbook is really the document that includes the state of knowledge related to coastal adaptation in the National Park Service. It covers topics as diverse as planning and policy to natural resources, cultural resources, facility management. But we've also added in some elements of what truly is cutting edge. It's got a case study of Hurricane Sandy and how the Park Service responded and worked under recovery efforts for Hurricane Sandy. And we've also got some information in there related to coastal engineering because we recognize there are special places in some of those places it will involve putting in additional infrastructure along coastlines. So we actually have a chapter looking across the park service and what did it really cost and what were some of the impacts? So it really is the culmination of many years of expertise. I would actually say if I could download my brain, the brain of many of my colleagues, <laughs> that's what this document represents. And it really is cross-sectoral, and that means across many different disciplines. I don't know of another document quite like it out there. Okay, so we could dig into some more of the content, um, but that, that, that was good. And 
For folks, if you want to see the document, I'll have in the show notes for this episode links to the PDF file, and there's a case study file that's sort of a sister document for it. So we'll, we'll have that on, and maybe you can look at it as you're listening to this episode. So Great idea, Re- Doug. So, Rebecca, I'm, you know, there's these reports, they come out, but, you know, kind of what's the story behind them? And so whose idea was it to do this handbook? Uh, that was my brainchild, Doug, and it really oh. didn't come to fruition only by my effort alone. These are the types of things that you have a cast of many, particularly dear colleagues and even partners outside of the Park Service who helped us with this document. So we did put some funding into some initial work that came out with one document, and that were assets, meaning our infrastructure, our forts, lighthouses, visitor centers, at risk to one meter of sea level rise. So that report came out in 15. Then we did the case studies and the handbook, but really the case studies and handbook were a large effort of park service staff and park service time. And that includes the folks who helped with design and layout to others who help us maintain the website. So there are many people involved in so, this work. So was it already in the works? Remember that, and this was my time at MPS, there, it was at Western Carolina, there was a workshop. Was the handbook already kind of confirmed to happen when we all met for that workshop? It was a total, like, you remember it, right? It was like a coastal Oh, yes, yes. I organized that workshop, workshop with partners at Western Carolina University and some key partners there are Rob Young and Katie Peak. What we did was bring in people from the Park Service who worked in areas such as cultural resources, natural resources, facility management, We've then brought in additional expertise on topics like communication and policy. The staff at that meeting, really, that was the kicker, uh, kickoff for the first report, the companion document to this handbook, the case studies, because what we required is everyone who came to the workshop had to provide a case study. So that really brought out the companion document. And originally, the two were going to be together. We recognized there was so much content for the handbook that we did need to split them into two documents. Okay, so now we're getting into this document, and I want to highlight some areas. And so at the beginning of the the handbook, you know, you as most reports, you have definitions and terms that you really want to highlight. And so I just I want to read this because people love when you read definitions aloud. So and you have resilience, and the definition is the capability to anticipate, prepare for, respond to, and recover from significant multi hazard threats with minimum damage to social well being, the economy, and the environment. It is not a synonym for adaptation. Oh, gosh, I love that. As you, if you're a listener of the podcast, you know I just can't let this go about the whole resilience and adaptation. Whose idea was to stick that final sentence in there? Well, a lot of what we are referring to in here come from other documents. The National Climate Assessment, the International, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So that is called IPCC for short. So a lot of these definitions were not solely the Park Service. We definitely have some of our own input because you actually pulled out resilience. But if you really go into the glossary of this document, we have two definitions of resilience because it's used in different ways with different communities. Particularly when you talk resilience to a building manager may be very different than resilience to an ecologist. And so we actually have a definition for the community context as well as the ecological context. So we're trying to work with definitions as the terms are being used in current practice. 
So we do recognize that there is that difference between resilience and adaptation. Oh, come on. There's got to be that statement there, though. That's not IPCC. That it is not a synonym for adaptation. There must have been some internal kind of discussion that that sounds like Gregor in there. I sniff Gregor. Well, it could be Gregor and another person you've had on your podcast when he his former career was with the National Park Service. That was Nick Vizikelli. And one of the co-editors for the handbook, Amanda Babson, really get credit for digging in, looking at the literature, and putting out definitions that we felt really reflect current practice for the National Park Service. Well, well played on their part. I, I appreciate that statement there. And you, you, you kind of confirm my point that you have two different definitions of resilience just in this topic alone. That's part of the problem out there. And I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have done that, but that's just sort of the, the confusion that, that kind of runs associated with that word. Well, I think it is. And it's important to say how it's current practice, Doug, because Gregor and others actually have a paper out there about resilience. So if others really want to dig into that topic, they can look at how we recognize the term has been somewhat conflated after it has this certain ecological origin. And now we're implying it in the built environment. And so, yeah, there is a little bit of tension around how the term resilience is applied. But I know communities have resilience officers. And so, Many of us are working towards adaptation, and yet for the Park Service, we've had to really specify how some of the terms should be applied. Okay, so the handbook is a huge document, for better or for worse. It obviously represents a ton of effort on so many people. I I recognize it, and that's a good thing. But it's also, I'm sure, a burden and a responsibility to just kind of take this resource and you know, make it relevant to the parks and make it relevant to partners. And so, you know, that's partly what I want to talk about next. But there are a few key things that I think are, are good to get out and we don't have to spend much time on it. But scenario planning, I think, plays a prominent role in how the National Park Service approaches climate change planning. And so, I mean, could you quick and Nick, Fisichelli in his uh, original podcast, and a lot of people probably haven't listened to that one, but what is scenario planning? Could you kind of describe that really quickly? Uh, So scenario planning is really looking at a potential set of future conditions. And within those set of conditions, oftentimes you will look at the physical constraints. For example, one type of scenario planning looked at faster rates of sea level rise versus not as rapid rates versus increased storm conditions, versus less frequent storms. And when you start crossing those conditions, you may look at different ways that your environment will respond. Well, scenario planning also takes it a step further, so you're not only looking at the changes in the physical landscape and the physical environment. Sometimes you'll put over the sociopolitical factors, and that's particularly relevant today. We actually have times where there may be more or less government involvement. There may be more or less political will and even funding to make changes. So under scenario planning, you are really looking at those types of factors and how it plays out. In some of the processes I've actually undergone, I'm thinking one in particular for Assateague Island National Seashore in Virginia and Maryland. With those, it came out that we saw some similarities among scenarios, and we recognized all of a sudden we need to pay more attention to groundwater really as it relates to some of the ponies. People are used to coming to the parks and seeing the ponies from Chickating or may have read the story about Misty. It really is a factor that we have to look at for the groundwater, and yet it wasn't as prominent a factor that we needed to consider as the National Park Service until we went through that scenario planning process. So sometimes you come out of that process and you have some things going, gee, we really need more information on this topic, or others going, you know, a lot of these scenarios are really pointing in a similar direction. This may really 
have the will and recommend actions for, say, a park superintendent to take? Well, you know, I actually only did one of the kind of the formal scenario planning workshops that Lee Welling, the former head of uh, the climate change program, put on. And it was very it was fascinating. And it but it also to me, there's this this kind of insider perspective of it. Like we're having these conversations about these different scenarios. And and to me, the take home message, too, about scenario planning is that this doesn't represent this park's future. It's just a potential future that's supposed to inform planning. And I know that's probably a little bit confusing to people who aren't really doing it, but it's not, it's not a crystal ball saying this is what's going to happen. It's just this might happen. Let's adjust accordingly. And that's very difficult for some folks to get their head around. But at the same time, when you have those kind of internal conversations, and I think again about the Everglades, there's not a model I think out there now that says that the Everglades are going to be a terrestrial ecosystem within a hundred years, you know, when you have three feet of sea level rise. So when you do a scenario planning exercise for someplace like Everglades, or maybe it's like some of those islands you worked off on in North Carolina, how do you go from outside that internal discussion that you have that workshop, you have that scenario planning process to something like, okay, well, if it's really going to happen, what are the steps that we need to take? Does that make sense? I mean, it it certainly does because we're not merely doing something along the lines of looking at what the far reaching impacts of climate change are. We're putting in these factors of uncertainty is what some of the scenario planning is trying to capture. And part of that, you use kind of your experts in the room to help you with that. And yet, We've actually seen in parks where we need to go through another process, whether you call it structured decision making, but you recognize you're going to have to do an element of prioritization where you're going to put your funding, where you're going to take action. And so that process is very much where the park service is right now, because we recognize we have many resources and assets. They're irreplaceable, whether we talk about certain types of environments at Everglades, you know, specific hammocks or threatened endangered species, their habitat may truly be lost. It really is forcing kind of the, we're on the leading edge of where you deal with many of these topics. And it really helps you align and allocate some of your resources. And oftentimes in the Park Service, that's funding and staff time. Okay, so that's a nice transition. The, the National Park Service has a world-class inventory and monitoring program. And so what that is, I mean, please correct me. It's just, you know, what's the state of the parks? You know, what are the natural resources? What are their conditions? And, you're, you know, it's, it's research, I guess, checking wildlife. It's checking the health of the ecosystem. And so it's an ongoing research. Data is coming in, you know, geographic information data, and it's just there, you're accumulating that and you can make planning decisions based on this ongoing series of inventory and monitoring. Is, it, is that a very crude way of describing the program? Yeah, I think it really is. And for others, we used a term called vital signs. If you think about yeah. it with the medical analogy, what are the things you need to monitor to measure ecosystem health, to understand how the changes are occurring? So each park within what we call these networks, inventory and monitoring networks that were set up on kind of bioregions. What we're looking at is a set of parameters that help us understand ecosystem health. But I'll also say within our inventory monitoring program, we're going back and reassessing some of that with some of the new information related to climate change. So we're saying there may have been some other factors that were not considered when some of these networks began to be established, even as early as 2000. So many of these have been in place for several years collecting this information. And it really is a critical data set for the Park Service. 
Okay, and so where I was going with that is that, okay, you have the the vital signs. It's a, that is a great name. Have you, and I don't even recall this, but have you established metrics? Like, you know, let's say it's sea level rise or if it's a drought metric that it triggers a specific policy action within the national parks. You know, let's say it's an individual park, you know, and I look at sea level rise. Do you, I mean, is that, I mean, the handbook is, is a series of recommendations and it's guides, but does the park service actually have built-in triggers to take action based on some of these climate change metrics that are coming on? Well, in some of the places, what we're looking at is what we might call the threshold condition. I think that's what you're pointing yeah. towards. And some of those are established in certain locations. What we're recognizing, though, as I think we are in the place with many locations where we are trying to define what that threshold is. And so some of the information, such as water quality, helps us understand how the environment is changing so that if we get an impact, such as, say, a harmful algal bloom, um, we've had some of these that are very noxious and offensive, <laughs> even to humans, um, in even South Florida over the last year. So we have to be very careful where those actually occur. But when you have baseline data, even if it's an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, there we have conditions so that we can take action. So I would say for most of the parameters, they are not set up to have certain triggers or thresholds. And yet there are many cases where that data is critical to making a decision. Yeah. And I just think people that are actually out in the park that are doing work, having a trigger or a threshold, that's how they like to operate. You know, it's just like X happens. So let's do Y. And so, I mean, I know it's very tough to, to identify what that threshold might be, but that's, that's how you have to kind of start thinking about it. Absolutely. And thresholds are something I've worked with. We've already mentioned Lee Welling and others where we're looking at thresholds for areas such as our barrier islands. So the data that's collected on topics such as shoreline change is critical to helping us make decisions on topics such as visitor access. Is a road viable at this location in the park? Is the visitor center in a somewhat stable location or does it need to be relocated? And those are topics that are being looked at at parks from Gulf Islands National Seashore in Mississippi and Florida to Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts. Okay, moving on in this handbook, there was a you know, it's broken up into these different sections and we don't need to mention all the sections, but cultural resources, as you, you noted a little earlier, is, is a big section. And I just want a, a shout out to Marcy Rockman, who's the cultural resources adaptation coordinator at the National Park Service. And I always like to brag about the Park Service even hiring that position. I think that's really cool that they did that. And so, you know, I was looking at the cultural resource chapter and I just see Marcy's fingerprints all over this thing. It's dense as hell, and I'm sure multiple people worked on it, but it's a thick chapter, and I don't think people appreciate the national parks. They think Grand Canyon, they think Yosemite, but it truly is, uh, you know, a holder of all these incredible cultural resources. Absolutely, Doug. And I would say this document was tracking very closely behind another document that the Park Service was able to release in early January. It's the Culture Resource Climate Change Strategy. And so there's a whole separate document that's focused in on just cultural resources and how we deal with it with our four pillars related to climate change being communication, adaptation, mitigation, and science. And so their strategy is very much organized under those four pillars. With that document, we were working so closely with Marcy because we would try and track every iteration they made of that document so that this one that was finally released on October 31st with the fourth anniversary of Hurricane Sandy so that we were still tracking and consistent with the information 
for the strategy and an associated impacts table. In fact, we have modified versions of that information in the handbook. And as you said earlier, keeping track of the information, we even have additional guidance that'll be forthcoming under planning. So we are trying to point to the current state of information as it's there. But I will also have to say, Marcy is a true rock star and she is such a voice for cultural resources and for how the Park Service can be both a source of climate change information as well as an area that we have to document impacts to and protect resources from climate change. Those are two ways Marcy really has helped us communicate related to climate change and cultural resources. Go Marcy. Okay, uh, just a an additional note on the cultural resources. Fort Jefferson is this Spanish fort that's off the coast of Florida. I think it's like 100 miles off the coast of Key West, something like that. You know, people go down there, they take a boat, they scuba dive, they snorkel, and it's really this amazing resource. And one of the conversations that was happening when I was at the National Park Service is, should we continue to invest resources in Fort Jefferson? You know, the walls are falling apart. And that is a great example of, you know, this Storms come through and knock it around, but as sea level rise, it's only going to create even bigger problems. Why should taxpayers keep rebuilding this fort? Oh, Doug, that's an amazing question and one the Park Service continues to find as a challenge to how we apply our management policies and also how we apply our funding. One thing we've recognized, though, is for these resources such as Fort Jefferson, uh, one of the largest brick masonry structures in the Western Hemisphere. It is massive, and yet it is irreplaceable. We've recognized that in many ways. Although if we do take steps to repair it, if we can protect these facades or the areas around some of these casemates where the iron is beginning to have portions of the fort falling off, falling, falling off. If we can do repairs, then these structures are likely to be more resilient, more resistant to the impacts of climate change. In this location, we're looking at impacts from storms and sea level as a couple of the major impacts. So if we can repair structures, we've recognized this is something is one of the best things the Park Service can do to make them more resistant to the impacts of climate change. You've heard about the infrastructure backlog. And part of that we recognize is if we can repair these areas in parks, a lot of times they're more resistant to what we would also call natural hazards, but also climate change. Well, I hate ever having to use the term like, you know, should the taxpayers have to fund this? Because <laughs> I certainly don't mind funding some of these things, but I do recognize that for all the the efforts to make Fort Jefferson more resilient, is that a dollar that could go somewhere else to maybe a park that isn't going to have such a huge challenge? And you guys are going to have to make those trade-offs in the, in the years to come. And so, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, absolutely, Doug. And those are just ongoing decisions and we have to constantly reevaluate as new impacts occur. We had Sandy up in New York and New Jersey. We just had Hurricane Matthew go up a lot of the Florida, uh, Georgia and Carolina coast. With those types of impacts, you have to look at how what we call our assets are built and sometimes our archaeological resources how those have been impacted. So we have to look at the impacts to those resources and how we can recover or respond. And one of the biggest things I like to say and emphasize is that impacts in storms like this are opportunities to adapt to climate change, but we have to plan for those in advance. Well said. Okay, the handbook. I always have had trouble with handbooks and reports, and that's because I have the attention span of a fruit fly, and that's that's on me. And But I, I know it. What this was a 160-page document. And I, I just 
want to offer some observations and a ton of excellent work. But uh, I want to highlight at the end of each section, you have take-home messages, those bullet points. Really like that. People that are kind of skimming through this, they're not going to dig in through all that content and try to understand what might be valuable. So uh, I applaud those take-home messages. That's really useful. Oh, thanks. And we got them. They're all summarized in the executive summary. So people can actually just go. And that is two pages. They can go in and get the key points on everything from planning and policy to communications and education and lessons learned from Hurricane Sandy. We got it down to two pages. So yes, we also recognize people are going to dive into this document in different places. So if someone is really interested in cultural resources, they're going to start there. If they want to know what we're talking about for facility management, that's where we'll go. We also try and point to current resources, as well as there's a companion website, which we will be updating information as new resources are available. Because we recognize, yeah, we went the route of still putting together a full PDF, you know, a full document. And yet um, there are many ways people are getting information these days. So that's why I'm so happy to be able to talk to you on the podcast and give people some of the highlights. So maybe tease their interest and dive in at a certain place. Ooh, another perfect transition. So the communication section of the handbook, I did not see podcasting in there at all. Was that purposely left did out? Did we miss I mean, it, Doug? Podcast. All right. It, it, That's something I have to put in for the revision. I'll, I'm going to the chapter right now and looking. Uh, Ryan well, Stubblebine with the Climate Change Response Program dug in on that. And a lot of this is tiered off of some of our existing work for interpretation and education. If we did not list podcast, I know we had everything from videos to other elements, but you're right. Podcasting is kind of new. Okay, and, and some so, of us are appreciating that for the first time. What I'm getting at too with podcasting, here you are, you're coming on my podcast to talk about the handbook and get the word out. But, uh, and I bet some parks are already doing this and just sometimes it's not shared, but have you heard of a individual park starting their own podcast? I've not heard of podcasts. I've seen everything from social media to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, videos posted. If they do have a podcast, I'd love to hear about it. Right. So, I mean, that's my recommendation. That's why it should be in the chapter. You know, a Grand Canyon, they could sustain a weekly or even a once a month podcast. And, you know, with a podcast, you don't have to talk about controversial subjects. You know, you bring in people from the public, you have conversations with them, and it just podcasts. The listeners of a podcast are very loyal and they have an engagement level that you're just not seeing with newsletters or webinars. And so you have like 420 plus park units and a lot of them could start their own podcast. And if you just set some parameters on, you know, what's safe, because you are government employees and, you know, you have to be sensitive to that. But if you get the right kind of host at each park, people are going to enjoy that. And you're going to have tourists who are going to want to listen to that as they plan, you know, trips to park. So anyway, on your updated digital version, you should consider adding podcasting as something the individual park should do, not just appearing on other people's podcasts. Absolutely. You're cutting edge, cutting edge here, Doug. <laughs> sort of. And some additional, you know, these aren't going to all be softball questions. I, it talks about social media and it was kind of funny. You have four, you have like Facebook and, but then they had Flickr and there was no Instagram. And I was almost worried that I was going to read like, you know, you're going to have my space on there. And thankfully that wasn't in there, but that must be tough for you guys because you guys are, are, are government employees and you try it. I know there's this sort of neutral language you have to use, but the social media that, that needs to be more dynamic because that is shifting so quickly and it just felt, you know, it didn't feel like 
if someone really wanted to take advantage of it, they would just be better off Googling it on, you know, on Google. So anyway, just some gentle f- feedback for you on that. Yeah. Section. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. No, I, anyone who's done a document knows you probably got most of the content ready almost a year ago. So it could go out to right, public review, right. peer review, and those types of things. So yeah, there's some things we need to update. And I'll take ownership as the lead editor that there are things we can always improve on a document like this. Okay. Well, it, it, it's it's a great document. And I just, to me, the communication section, and I don't know if you recall, you know, Randy Olson was my previous guest on the podcast. And when he came and spoke to the National Park Service, that was the first time I met him. He talked about how grants should be set up. You know, currently 90% of it goes toward like whatever the research or the project is. And then 10% is, or even 5% is this throwaway for the communication plan associated with whatever you're doing. And he recommended flipping those numbers. And I don't necessarily agree with maybe that ratio, but I really appreciated his point. And so I think that's even true for what you're doing here. And I guess that it'd be a nice pivot too, is that, you know, what are you doing to get this handbook out there, as you can appreciate as the owner of this handbook, it's a monumental effort and you don't want it to land with just a thud to sit on some shelf. And so what is your communication plan for the this guidebook? Well, we've had a few things working with other federal agencies. That's where we see some of the most immediate application. We also see the work with other states. So I'll be coming to the adaptation forum. I'll be helping NASA with some of their trainings, working to apply this information at some of their sites. So we are trying to do some direct engagement as well as sharing with some of our partners. It's been intriguing to get contacts from state historic preservation offices in Ohio and other places interested in this. So we've actually had some of our partners even working to share it in their networks as well. It came out at a really interesting time. It was released October 31st, and we know what happened in early November with the election. So the news media was saturated. So this didn't really get that same hook and draw into the actual media that we have seen with other releases. For example, the case studies report was released at COP21 in Paris. So it got a very, very prominent release and a lot of take uh, from the media. So we have seen some interest. As I said, it's a different document. It's a handbook. And so we will work with the practitioners, particularly in coastal management, to see that this is applied. Well, it's going to catch fire once I publish this podcast. So be ready, okay? Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't want to dig in too much to it, but you, you, there's this the sister case study book. And, you know, do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I've got it. All right. So go to page 50. All right, what's on page 50, Doug, while I'm getting there? Just go, you'll, you'll see. So get to the bottom. You'll, look, you'll see the page 50 on the bottom. Oh, yes, case study 21. How could I have forgotten this one? Look at that amazing contributing author, Doug Parsons, on a case study on incorporating climate change into Florida's state wildlife action plans. Wow. So I was a contributor. I'm in one of these case studies. I almost forgot. So, you know, be perfectly honest. Has this been the f- most popular case study of them all so far? I you know what? I should check on our web stats and actually see. <laughs> they can't, we can actually download individual case studies. And these, as you said, the handbook's a little bit more of a big document. These case studies are written as one, two, three pages. 
that are really meant for media attention. And they really have been used and shared with other partners and particularly the media. What is happening at Acadia? What is happening at these other agencies? How's the Park Service adapting to climate change? So this has been pulled up in a variety of areas all the way from NPR to other print and digital media. So it has been, I would say this particular document had more of a gear to the press and media. And, you know, with case studies like 21 on incorporating climate change into Florida's state wildlife action plan, how can we go wrong? I love that name too. Case study 21. I should like name him a part of the podcast. Case study 21. You know, it has a, there's what it, an agenda 21, the UN thing. So oh, yeah, great. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out when I was digging through it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot I worked on this. And at one point when I left, you had followed up and you needed a different contact since I wasn't with the Park Service anymore. And you had Brian Bransafort as the actual contact at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And at that stage, I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to be scrubbed completely from this. But I stayed in. So I'm very excited. Excellent. No, we kept the case studies. We actually gave credit who was a contributing author. As I said, this was a workshop back in May of 2012. And yet we recognize some of these topics need current contact. So that's what we tried to do at the end, give context for more information. There's even websites. So people, if they want to find a case study and dig into it, hopefully they've got ways that they can go deeper on these topics. All right. Well, a couple more questions on the handbook and then sort of want to wrap up with some questions for you just as a park service employee. But let's say you're the manager of a small local park, you know, 500 acres, 1,000 acres, and you're on the coast and you find this handbook. And again, this goes to the issue of like you have this giant handbook. I mean, how would you recommend someone like that to really approach this document? If they're out there listening right now, they're like, wow, this handbook's out there, but how's it really going to help me? And so what, what would you say? What steps should they take? Well, I think they're going to dive in on a topic. If they have an eroding shoreline that's got an archaeological resource at risk, they may dive into the cultural resource section. And they're like, well, guess what? We really need to protect the shoreline if we're at Fort Raleigh, if we're at other places where we really say that this is a resource we can't let erode away. Then they're going to dig into kind of the infrastructure chapter and how to look at what are their options for shoreline engineering. We have some information on there on living shorelines, and we really do try and present there are places it's worked well. Here's some places it wasn't designed appropriately and maybe the vegetation needed to be replaced. So we recognize this is a process. It's not one stop and everything is fixed. I think most people recognize that adaptation is a process. And so depending where they are on a given day, they may need to dive in. And if they're designing a wayside, they could go into the communication chapter and see examples from Gulf Islands and Dry Tortugas. And we also have newsletters, other information examples in there. So it can be a way that even a park can dive in, but they may find a sister park that's done some great work and they can reach out to fellow National Park Service employees on that. Or we can find someone in a in a state that may find something they could apply to their coastal management program as well. Wow. I thought I sort of had a semi-gotcha question there, but that was an awesome answer. That was very practical advice if you're out there listening. <laughs> well, Dad, I've you, almost I, lived and breathed this this information for years. So it's like, as I said, literally, if I could put the information I knew I could share with a park, it would be this document. You've been so close to this for so long. I mean, do you hate this document now? Do you, I, mean, I had to take a break. <laughs> That's probably why the media didn't get, you know, between the election occurring in November, everyone takes kind of a break in holidays. I know a lot of us had to do some regrouping and kind of get ourselves refortified to talk about climate change and really look at what we can do 
because I'm convinced if we really don't embrace and work on this topic, we are going to miss some opportunities because we're not going to have unlimited funding forever. And that's why I mentioned if there's a storm impact, if parks can get in there and really make some effective changes, that's an important time to do that. So it, I, I really say we've got some time limited opportunities, but we have to still be in it for the long haul. Excellent. Okay. So I do want to wrap this up relatively soon. And so a few more questions. All right. So as you noted earlier, something really big and consequential happened last November. And by the time people listen to this podcast, we will have had the transition to a new president. So comrade Rebecca, people are a little bit nervous about the incoming president, about some of the things that we've said. And I just, you know, we've chatted a little bit about this, but what could you say as a climate change person at the National Park Service, maybe to make people feel a little bit more confident that you're going to keep doing what you're doing? Doug, I would first point to the science behind climate change. Many of us who've worked in this area for a while, and I admit I came to it from the geologic side, seeing the impacts of storms on shorelines. What we recognize is these areas are inherently dynamic. We know coastlines change. We know bare islands move. What we are seeing is the potential change in the rate of these changes. It is increasing, whether it be sea level at most locations or some of the impacts we're seeing from storms, rates of erosion. And we have made a lot of changes in our coastal landscape. So we really have to take some time and look at it. I see whether we call it climate change or we talk about it as smart business practices, because the Park Service manages a tremendous amount of infrastructure to get visitors to these areas. So we have to look at this. We are there to provide for visitor enjoyment, even for future generations. So we don't have the option to take a step back, to really pause. We have to go full steam ahead with the best information we have. So in the Park Service, we are still staying the course and working on these topics. We recognize there's a certain amount of focus on the topic of climate change, but I'll say a lot of this work I was doing, whether I was called a coastal geologist looking at shoreline change. So I think it's important for many people to recognize, yeah, there's some unanticipated things we're going to see, and it can be directly attributed to climate change. But many of these impacts and the ways we're going to respond are business as usual for the National Park Service. Our former director, John Jarvis, said climate change is the biggest threat facing the National Park Service. And many of us recognize and appreciate that. We're just trying to internalize it and address climate change pretty much as our usual business practices. Well, I hate to describe it. You have to get in the business of coming up with those weasel words. But I think, you know, looking at your guidebook that, like you said, you can still do the things that you're doing. I mean, I look at disaster management and risk assessment. These are all things that adaptation planning, they're, they're closely tied. So I imagine as, as you guys want to do climate change planning, but if there, it is, you know, a hostile, at least semantic environment to even use those terms that you're, you're going to be able to, I think, hopefully be able to do a lot of this stuff based on like the bread and butter associated with like, you know, storm planning and all that. So I, I, I I'm sure you guys will adjust accordingly. Yes, we will. <laughs> Silence. Well, and I meant that in a positive way. Cause like you said, you know, the science is there, you are there to represent the public. And so you're going to hopefully keep doing that no matter, you know, what kind of conditions are out there. But all right, I, I want to wrap this up. Rebecca, any sort of uh, final thoughts about the climate change program and, you know, specifically the, the Coastal Adaptation Handbook? 
Well, thanks for the time to talk about this, Doug. It Right now, where we stand with this handbook is trying to summarize information on a variety of topics. We stand prepared to assist parks to respond to impacts, and whether that be directly attributed to climate change or, as I say, other coastal topics, we will be there to help the parks. And that's the Climate Change Response Program, but it's also Rebecca saying this is our time to adapt to climate change, and we really want the public to engage with the Park Service, share with us good ideas. Uh, We have partners all the way from the private sector to other public agencies, we recognize that we need some inventive, creative people. So if anything I can say is a plea to others, we're looking for those great ideas. We're looking for those creative persons. And we would actually welcome many of them to work with us, even in the National Park Service's employees, but also as other partners to help us really take the next step so that we can have these resources available for the visiting public for a long time to come. Okay. And one thing that I do on my show that I've started to do is I've asked my guests to recommend a future guest. And if you can help get me, and I just want one person and keep in mind, you've listened to the podcast. I'm looking for interesting topics, but people that, you know, maybe bring an interesting angle to it. So can you think of someone off the top of your head that would make a great guest on the podcast? Um, Can I give you two? Damn it. Okay, two. <laughs> um, one person I would recognize is a woman named Margaret Davidson. Margaret's been a great mentor of mine. She's worked with NOAA for many years, and she is a woman well-trained in the legal side, but also very passionate about coastal resources. She is one person I could recommend who really tells it like it is. She's not going to pull any punches. She is going to cut to the chase, and I really respect her frankness, her forthrightness, as well as her direct approach. Another person that I recommend is Kaya Chatterjee. She's worked a lot with climate action and she's lived that walk. She has looked at every way to raise a young child with minimal carbon impact. She has looked at ways to help advance the topic of climate change. So those are two women I'd like to recommend who really get out there and get after it. Okay, excellent. And so maybe you can help with some of those, but I always do like to highlight like potential guests because that's, you know, that's what this show is all about. All right. So on that note, Rebecca, thanks for coming on. You know, I miss working with you. It was always fun. You know, I I just want to say to listeners out there that the park service has some really amazing people. Rebecca for a while there was working part time and Rebecca working for an hour is like, 10 times more productive than I ever was. You're a beast and the park service is your jewel for them. So I appreciate everything that you do. And I just, I want the public to know that there's these amazing public servants out there who are passionate about their work. And so thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you, Doug. And I've got to say your time working at the park service was very much appreciated. Your ability to take topics and discuss them in multiple ways. I'm really to see you finding this home with the podcast because I really think you found a great place and you've created a great product that I will say I enjoy listening to America Daps. And as much as my son likes listening to podcast, it is a great venue to reach people. So thank you for this opportunity. Oh, that's so awesome. Having someone younger listen, that's just, you know, makes me very happy. Yeah, I still think we need the, that kids podcast. Let's talk offline, but we're going to have maybe a a kid podcast and, uh, well, we'll figure out what the topic will be that, but that, I think that might be something very different. So that's what I'm looking for. Great. 
All right. So Rebecca, you have a great day and a great week. And for all of you listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters, welcome back. What a fantastic interview with Rebecca Beavers. It was a treat to get her on the National Park Service, as you well, probably heard. I used to work there. And so I wanted to have a sort of a roundtable discussion, and this is a tiny little table. I brought back on one of your favorite previous guests, Dan Ackerstein. Hey, Dan, are you out there? Oh, hey there, Doug. That's that's so nice of you to say. Hello to all my fans. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things since your uh, year in review appearance on uh, America Adapts. Dan, could you just briefly again say who you are and what you do? My pleasure. Uh, I'm a sustainability consultant. Uh, I work mostly on uh, sustainable operations and maintenance for uh, commercial and institutional buildings, and I'm based in Santa Cruz, California. And Dan's a smart guy, and I, I brought him on because I think he has some insight. That remains to be seen. Hopefully, well, after a few minutes of this, you'll figure that out yourself. But we wanted to chat a little bit about that interview and about some of the things going on now. Just a little bit of context before Dan and I jump into this is that, like I said earlier, that recording with Rebecca happened three days before the inauguration. She got permission to do it from her higher-ups. I'm not sure she would get permission to do it now. That's been a pretty, uh, this is an understatement of the year, a kind of crazy couple weeks under Donald Trump. And I wanted to bring Dan on and talk about, okay, Rebecca demonstrated that the National Park Service is going to continue to work on climate change. That is our hope. But I want to talk about, is that realistic or what are some ways ahead on this? And Dan, so I guess what's your insight? Here we have a person in the federal government working on climate change. Do you think it's going to be status quo? So to me, there's there's kind of two interesting forces at work. And and even in in what are we we're in week three now, week, I think week three of the administration, we're seeing those forces pushing and pulling against each other. You have a degree of activism from a new administration, uh, an intensity of activism from a new administration. And, you know, the first question is, the first force at work is, is are they going to maintain that degree of activism, that intensity of action for any any sort of meaningful period of time? And the the second force that, that is working against the, the first is sort of institutional inertia and institutional knowledge. Um, we've been through eight years of building a, uh, a an institutional infrastructure that fundamentally believes in climate change and is working to to mitigate its effects. And it's not as simple as a handful of tweets to simply stop that ship from moving. And the the last three weeks have been a phenomenal illustration of those forces pushing and pulling on sort of the the national agenda. So I think I think it's it's interesting times. You know. There's so many things that you can read into what the administration's doing. They were pretty hostile on climate change in the campaign, and so that's what a lot of us are going on. And one of the things early on, you know, within minutes of Trump being inaugurated, the climate change page on the White House went down. And so I tried to say, okay, you know, I think I talked about this with Andy Revkin last week, is that the new administration, they have, they have their priorities. They have their new the content that they want to use, and so maybe – that wasn't such a blatant thing that everyone maybe thought it was. But on the flip side of that, there are all sorts of pages all over the federal government, and they weren't taken down minutes after he was inaugurated. There's symbolism in some of these moves. And so, you know, my gut instincts is saying, all right, this is a sign of things to come. But they haven't even filled out their EPA agency and such. And so I think a lot of the content is going to be under review and maybe some climate change stuff does come back up. So we'll see. 
Well, and that's, you know, I think you use the word symbolism and that's exactly right. The question is the degree to which action around climate change, it will be symbolic. That is sort of checking off a box so that um, Trump can tell people that he's against climate change and, and sort of stay on the right side of that issue in terms of his voters. Or is he is he serious? Does he really feel that climate change regulation and climate change research is a drag on the on the vision of America that he has? And will he spend the time and political capital to really invest in deconstructing our, our, our climate change mitigation infrastructure? I mean, it's there is there is a finite amount of time and energy that any any government has to enact their agenda. And I'm not entirely convinced that climate change is on the top five things um, on Donald Trump's sort of sort of priority list. And you'd mentioned going after the science and sort of the regulations associated with climate change. And a lot of the work actually within the federal government is the planning, you know, planning for the impacts of climate change. Or, I mean, just even planning associated with uh, climate change science. And that might be an area that they just kind of keep their hands off. It's this boring thing that they think is not doing that much harm. I mean, you don't if you don't believe in in climate change, you're probably thinking why you're wasting your time on that planning. But I, I think a agency like the National Park Service, where a lot of their climate change efforts are associated with like taking the science and doing planning on the ground. Maybe that that kind of falls on the radar. And one of the things I'd mentioned to Rebecca is that we're going to have as appropriate as a George Orwell-esque change in terminology to kind of, I mean, the bureaucrats know how to do their job. And I think you're going to see if it if climate change really is a big no-no, you're going to see risk assessment and disaster management as new words that they use to kind of do a lot of the old adaptation planning. And that's silly and that's ridiculous. But if it's what they have to do to kind of keep on with climate change, then, you know, I'd certainly encourage it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And I think that a lot of I would imagine and hope that a lot of people in the federal bureaucracy are working on euphemisms right now because the degree to which this administration seems sensitive to terminology as opposed to sort of meaningful content, meaningful uh, regulatory minutia uh, seems extremely high. If, if, if the EPA wants to abandon the term climate change tomorrow and embrace some, you know, some opaque euphemism that means exactly the same thing, but allows uh, the Trump administration to feel like they've accomplished something, then by all means do so. But I, I think that's, I think you're going to see a lot of that, a lot of that as, as you've just observed and, and that it's going to be really interesting, uh, to see if the work continues even while the, the public relations around it shifts. Yeah. When I was at the park service, we went through, you know, and we had a friendly White House, but the Congress cut the budget of the climate change program by like 70, 80%. And it was fascinating to see how the bureaucracy kicked in and preserved the funding, but in, you know, I will, very clever ways. And I'm curious how that might unfold if there, there, I mean, I don't, you know, and we're talking about President Trump too and his own issues, but Congress is still another looming threat out there and they might go in and they, they will do the kind of Google search for climate change in some of these agencies and line item out these programs independent of what Trump might do. And so I think the bureaucrats and someone just reminded me, don't call them bureaucrats, call them technocrats. It's, it's a (laughs) a nice term, I guess, to use, but uh, (laughs) okay, I'm a technocrat that 
they have a challenge. And again, this is so depressing to think that when I was in the government, I thought how slow all these things went. And that was with a friendly White House. And to go to go to just into defense mode, that, that it's really depressing. But it that might be what they have to endure for a while. Well, let, let me ask you a question as someone who has has, has sort of has worked at, at the Park Service and, and has has a lot more experience in the Washington technocracy than uh, than I do. So I I like to imagine that the, the the EPA building is full of you know tree huggers of, of various degrees of green that the that the National Park Service that the, the the Department of Energy places like that are are full of folks who are mission driven and for whom the the issues are what motivates them and um, a, a given a change in administration is likely to influence their ability to do their jobs, but to not fundamentally take them off course. You know, that, that perhaps they're, they're changing a few degrees to the, to their, their direction, but for the most part, they're, they're headed in this, in, in the same, to the same ultimate destination. On the other hand, the more cynical sort of version of me thinks of these, thinks of, of, well, thinks of a bureaucrat who's most interested in making sure that they continue in their position and making sure that, they, that their career continues to evolve and and, uh, and grow. And in which case it may behoove them to be extremely responsive to a given administration and to 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 look at that leadership and be much more activist about implementing their agenda. What's your sense of things, for example, at the National Park Service, the degree to which folks are going to going to find you know, the, the, uh, the, the new boss changes their agenda and their willingness to, um, to enact an agenda. Well, if I think a lot of people have seen in these first few weeks, the National Park Service of all the agencies has been a bit feisty. Yeah. Badlands National Park, before they squash that, got some tweets out on climate change. And if you talk to people, some people be like, ah, oh, they created more trouble than, you know, the act of rebellion justified. And I, I disagree. I think, uh, it, it was assigned to the public. It's like, you know, there are people on the inside who, who want to fight the good fight. So, but I think it's going to be a mixed bag. The bureaucracy is huge. And so there is that element of, I mean, when I was there, there's just plenty of people. They're in the system. It actually is kind of hard to lose your job as a federal employee. So they want to preserve those jobs, good benefits, good pay. And so they're not going to rock the boat. But at the same time, as you said, there are, there are people that join the National Park Service that join some of these other EPA. They're mission driven. They want to do good. These are public servants. Those are that term. That's a noble term, a public servant. And a lot of people really take that seriously. Mm -hmm. And so what I think you're just going to see are just a lot of leaks. They're going to be, I think, engaging in ways that, you know, just higher ups are never going to be able to kind of track. It's like the official things that are going to kind of be depressing. It's like, all right, the communication shop won't let us talk about this in a very big way. And then, you know, another thing that's kind of depressing though is what they can influence is the ability to travel and so going to conferences that's going to probably be curtailed quite a bit too and it's all going to be under the bullshit of like cost savings but it's not it's going to be um just paralyzing the federal government from actually going out there and mm-hmm. doing good and so but i'm curious as how these federal agencies and you know especially the park service park service is very unique and like it's it has a unique mission that you know America's best idea you have millennials who are coming into the system and they don't look at at least I don't think they do that's not what the kids tell me these days but they don't look at okay I'm going to take this job and I'm going to do it for the next 40 years whereas you know the right. previous generation did so their sense of loyalty to 
baloney hopefully won't be as much, you know? Maybe they'll stick their necks out more. Maybe they'll work with reporters more. Maybe they'll even do things on the ground that maybe they're not officially supposed to be doing. That, you know, the federal government distributes a lot of money through grants and funding, and so there's going to be probably new rules and regulations there. But there are ways to kind of mm-hmm. game that system, too. When I was at the Park Service, I you know, I was in the D.C. office, and you, you talk to the budget people, and the first thing they tell you is never talk about the budget with anyone, anyone ever, mm-hmm. because <laughs> they are masters of doing the budget work, you know, and there's only so much Congress can do with their oversight of the bureaucracies. And so that's their way of maneuvering. And if they get to dumb head of the agency and, you know, some of the people that are coming to the, the, the cabinet level, you know, we're all worried about them, but to me, the the people that have the less experience, that's probably the better, you know, the because they don't understand how the bureaucracy works and how the policies kind of filter down and how to be more effective. They might make one or two big initiatives, but they won't truly be able to change things because they're just going to be incompetent in the ways of how it operates. It's the people that really have an agenda before. I mean, I would hire from a think tank if I were these people, not, you know, what, what's the woman's name for education? Betty DeVos? DeVos? Um, it sounds right. like she's just incompetent and, you know, everyone's scared of her getting in. And I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's an awful thing. But I also think, you know, probably the, the technocrats are going to run circles around her. So I, that's one way I'm encouraged by by some of that. But uh, very long way of answering your question. I think it's going to be a mixed bag. You're going to have people are going to do whatever they're told. Other who's going to fight the good fight. You see all these alternative Twitter handles that are coming out, you know, alt USGS, alt NPS and people, mm-hmm. you know, and this podcast, I'm encouraging federal employees to share information with me or to come on if they can. Or if you're about to re- about to retire, those people are going to be feeling feisty, too. And so I think it's going to be brutal and, you know, it's totally unnecessary, but I'm somewhat encouraged that this bureaucracy is not is going to not going to go along with a lot of the awful decisions that are going to be forced upon them. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I will be impressed if in fact the, the Trump administration has the patience and the diligence to do the work it will take to, to dig deep enough into the, these agencies to where change would really have to happen. I mean, I, I just can't imagine that there are five or 600 um, Trump supporters out there who are excited to go work for the National Park Service and tear down that institution from from inside or, or you know, who are dying to go go to the EPA and uh, and and just dig under the foundations until it collapses. Uh, I'm sure those people there are plenty of people who exist who would like to see that happen. But I don't know that a they want those jobs and b that the Trump administration is going to take the time and energy to to find those people, hire them and and get them into positions of power. But so one other thing that you mentioned that I I, I found totally fascinating was the the Badlands tweet situation. To me, that just touched on so many kind of points of interest around where we are politically and 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 socially. First of all, you've got this, you've got Twitter as this incredibly distributed mechanism for, for a commentary. So Badlands National Park has, before Twitter, essentially has no, no malfeasance at all. Do they send out a press release? And and does anyone read that press release? Of course not. Suddenly 
you know, an individual at, at a single national park has a way of, to, to speak to the world. And just as you said, to, to sort of send a, a, a voice of, of reassurance, a voice of, of resistance, a voice of, of sort of sensibility when people are, are desperate for those. And then you've got the, what I found, I think most interesting about it is the idea that what they actually tweeted, the actual content of the tweet was Essentially accepted scientific fact. It was uh, effectively a non-political statement of, you know, of something we know to be true as, as a society. For all intents and purposes, there's nothing in that tweet that was any more interesting or um, controversial than, you know, the, the, the law of gravity. So, and yet it was still problematic for this administration. And that to me is incredibly interesting. We are exploring sort of the boundaries of what fact and truth mean, and the administration seems to have absolutely no um, no attachment to pre-existing definitions of of fact, truth, um, etc. And so the the assignment that they've given themselves is incredible. I mean, they're basically saying we're going to redefine the the English language for our own purposes um, and police it throughout a federal government of, of hundreds of thousands of people. It's, it's a remarkable undertaking and, uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds in this, this context where everyone, everyone has uh, an opportunity to, uh, to grab a microphone and be heard. You know, with the Badlands tweet, it wasn't completely like, okay, here is a fact. And someone stood pointed out that one of the tweets related to ocean acidification and someone would argue, why in the heck is Badlands National Park sharing, you know, <laughs> environmental it's, education about ocean acidification? You know, it was it, more. It's like, just a very low tide at Badlands. <laughs> it's just a very low tide. Uh, well, maybe it was an ocean. Uh, maybe there's some kind of. But no, there was obviously an agenda there, and God bless them. You know, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm thrilled. But there, there was read between the lines going on there too. But uh, I, I want to wrap this up. But. The, Sort of saying again, like how the technocrats could kind of slow things down. One of the things I talked about with Rebecca is that you know you know what a wayside is, right? Yes. Well, it's you know the sign is like if you go to a national park and it just says you're overlooking Grand Canyon and tells you the mm-hmm. history or whatever. And, you know the laminated plastic signs you see everywhere, mm-hmm. and to make those stupid signs takes forever. And so if there's one that has climate change on it, you know maybe there's some order coming out from the Department of Interior saying. You need to scrub all the climate change from the waysides. It's like, okay, well, that process is so long. I mean, and, you know, maybe eventually they do it, but it's not like, you know, you tear something up and you stick out crap. It's like, all right, well, again, the Trump people aren't going to have the patience to kind of look over, okay, well, they have to workshop, you know, these new signs for these particular parks. And it's just this endless process, which for better or for worse – that I think those a million of those decisions are going to unfold as as these agencies are going to have to reflect this kind of new policy priorities. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. All right, I need to wrap this up. But uh, Dan, any final thoughts before we head out to week four of President Trump? I, week three has been heartening. Uh, the last the last week has certainly been heartening. Um, I, I'm I think that week one was uh, was nightmarish. Week two. Uh, signs of the resistance, um, and, and week three suggests that this is going to be, this is going to be a very interesting undertaking for, for all parties. But, uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking about it more with you, Doug. 
Yep. All right. Thanks for coming on. And all right, everybody, uh, this is America Daps. All you adapters out there, I hope you have a great week. Thanks. That is a wrap with this week's episodes, adapters. Thanks again for joining in. Thanks to Dr. Rebecca Beavers of the National Park Service coming on and talking about all the wonderful things the National Park Service was doing and I hope continues to do under this new Trump administration. We'll be on watch for that, but it, I'm heartened that the Park Service has such incredible employees like Rebecca doing what they do. The level of expertise is just amazing. And the enthusiasm they bring to the job, we need to have their back. And, and I hope we do. Thanks to Dan Akerstein coming on and, and sort of talking about what, you know, the first few weeks might mean going forward for a lot of these federal agencies. Thanks again, Dan. And again, don't forget, I have a Facebook page and a community group. Check those out. Subscribe on iTunes. Don't forget to check out the PayPal option. If you're a foundation and you're looking for to support one of the few, if not the only, podcasts focused on adapting to climate change, give me a ring. Uh, I'd love to talk to you. And on that note, I hope everyone has a great week. I have Dr. Karen Bolter coming on talking about sea level rise in South Florida. We will be ground-truthing sea level rise with Karen. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. Again, you all have a fantastic week. This is America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. 